Well, uh, have you ever been in a situation where someone attempted to teach you a life lesson, but you completely missed the lesson entirely? Maybe right now you're thinking that's sort of a trip question, because if uh, I do remember that moment, then I guess I didn't miss the point entirely, right? So, sorry, I didn't mean to trick trick you. That wasn't a trick question. I think the truth is, is that sometimes uh, we just don't realize when someone is trying to teach us a life lesson. We don't realize sometimes that uh, the parent who's telling you to get a job over the course of the summer so that you might learn to be self-sustaining and you might learn that uh, life isn't all about handouts, sometimes, sometimes we just miss that lesson. Sometimes we think, you know, my parents, they're just trying to ruin my summer. Or maybe it's the coach who decided to pull you out of the game and put you on the bench. And you just walked off the field mad and, and angry because you thought the coach was just benching you. Meanwhile, the coach actually had an intention in doing that. And it, it was actually to teach you something. You did something in that game that, that resulted in you being benched. And you were supposed to pick up on that and you didn't understand the lesson that the coach was trying to uh, serve you. There are all sorts of underlying lessons in life that we miss on a regular routine basis. Sometimes we completely ignore them. Sometimes we're completely uh, just missing them. Whether it's a parent, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a coach, they're all going to try to use life lessons and it's, it's up to us to pay attention like I said, sometimes we just miss those moments. We don't realize that the action that person uh, performed was actually intended to teach us. And let me just point out that that is the book of Judges over and over and over again. Israel failing to learn from God's lessons. God is, is showing them lessons through their lives. They're supposed to be picking up on what God is intending to teach them. And yet, over and over again, we see them failing to receive the messages that God is trying to speak to them. And what happens is these, these failures on Israel's part to, to learn from God's lessons, they, they set a trajectory for the Israelites. They, these failed uh, responses on part of the Israelites send them into a cyclical type of failure. Over and over again, we see these cycles going on in the book of Judges, like we, we talked about last week as we introduced the book. Tonight, we're in chapters 2 and 3. And as we enter into chapter 2, we're going to see a lot of the themes that we discussed last week. We'll see the fact that uh, over and over again, the Israelites are going to experience this cycle, this cycle of failure. This chapter, as we come into chapter 2, begins with a message from the angel of the Lord. He's coming to the Israelites in order to critique them. He's criticizing the nation because of their lack of obedience. And this shouldn't come to, uh, come, come to us as a surprise if, if we remember what happened in chapter 1. Remember, throughout the course of chapter 1, all we saw over and over again was Israel's lack of holistic obedience. They had this half-hearted type of, of obedience to the Lord. So, for example, 
They had this calling, go into the land, drive out the inhabitants of the land, possess the land, and do not partake in what's happening there. Judah is given the the strict uh, guidelines, go into the land, I'm going to give you victory. The very next thing Judah does is they look to the tribe of Simeon and they say, hey, why don't you come help us? Even though God had already given them the victory. It seemed like a subtle act of disobedience in that moment. And then as we fast forward to the end of the chapter, we see that Judah didn't have the ability to rid the land of its inhabitants because of their subtle disobedience. As we read throughout the rest of chapter 1, we see more examples of this type of subtle, half-hearted obedience to the Lord. Remember, there were multiple tribes who entered into the land, and when those tribes got strong enough to drive out uh, the, the inhabitants of the land, what they decided to do instead was make the inhabitants of the land into their slaves. Right? It's a subtle act of disobedience. And yet, God is looking for wholehearted obedience. And so this leads us to the beginning of chapter 2, where the angel of the Lord is coming to the people of Israel with critiques for their half-hearted disobedience. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal, to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So, Clearly, God is coming to the Israelites and he's saying, your lack of disobedience will have consequences. Israel's enemies will prove to be a thorn in their side. And now there's a principle here that we we should not allow to go unnoticed. Disobedience comes with consequences. God is telling Israel that their disobedience will lead to a specific form of punishment. But this has some really important caveats, right, for us today that we can't miss. I would never say that every single form of suffering is the result of some specific sin. I don't think it's appropriate in the slightest, to look at someone who's sick and say, what sin are you stuck in? You know, what, what's actually going on in your heart right now? That, that is nonsense, right? That's not what's going on. That's not what God is calling us to. Not every form of suffering in life is the result of some specific act of sin. But with that said, we do need to recognize that disobedience will often carry natural ramifications. That's how God has structured the world. When you walk in uh, uh, cruelty towards those who are around you, when you are divisive, well, guess what? The people who are around you are going to sense that. You're going to have broken relationships. You might lose your job. You're going to cause disunity among those who are around you there are consequences to those sorts of actions. If you have the habit of driving around under the influence of alcohol, then in all likelihood, you're going to end up in trouble. 
Either you're going to end up dead, you're going to end up in jail, you're going to end up without a license. God has created the world in such a way that acts of defiance carry natural ramifications. In light of this, we need to recognize that being a Christian or becoming a Christian is not going to just solve all of those external difficulties your sin has brought you into. I think this is important for us to recognize because there are many churches out there who will preach the exact opposite. Become a Christian and everything's smooth. Become a Christian and your life is going to go well. But becoming a Christian is not going to auto-correct all of the broken relationships your sin has caused. It's just not going to happen. Maybe you've heard this idea that as Christians, when we forgive, we need to forgive and forget. That might sound great, but uh, sins can't just simply be forgotten, nor should they. Think about some examples with me. Let's say someone in your small group struggles with indulging in alcohol. And let's just imagine that that person gets really drunk one night, calls you up, and starts saying a bunch of stupid stuff to you over the phone. Okay, then the next day that person comes to you, they ask for forgiveness. Obviously you forgive them. That is the Christian call. However, think about this situation for a moment. Is it actually helpful to just forget that ever happened? Right? To pretend there are no consequences for your action in that moment. Is that actually helpful? I don't, I don't actually think it is helpful. In fact, you may uh, want to keep in mind that this person struggles with drinking alcohol and that they struggle with, with getting drunk and, and doing stupid things so that you can hold them accountable in the future. If you're just going to forget it ever happened, then how are you going to hold that person accountable? How are you going to help that person fight against that sin moving forward? Let me give a more extreme example. The church cannot pretend that sin has no consequences. Think about uh, a sex offender coming into a church wanting to, wanting to serve in the children's ministry. As a church, right? Is, we're supposed to forgive and forget, right? This person's a Christian. We just need to, need to forgive this person. There, there can't be any consequences for sin, right? No, they've been forgiven. Obviously, that's not the case. That would be extremely unwise, extremely unkind, and extremely unloving to the rest of the congregation. Sin does come with natural consequences. That is the way that God has intended the world to be. That's the way he has created our societies. And this leads to the entire concept of the judges' cycles that we spoke about last week. The cyclical pattern of the book. The fact that there is this constant indulgence in sin that carries natural consequences. We'll see this over and over again. Israel plunges face first into sin. Then God punishes Israel for their disobedience. Israel then cries out to God hoping that he will save them from their sin. And then God, in baffling form, responds with grace over and over again. We saw this cycle explained last week in chapter 2. I want to reiterate this. I just want to read this passage again so that we can better understand the book. So chapter 2, verse 11, I want to read all the way through verse 20. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. 
And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of those surrounding enemy, or into the hands of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whoever they marched out, or whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside to the way, uh, from the ways in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who, uh, who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the Lord was kindled against, or the Lord uh, was was kindled against Israel, and He said, um, "Because this people have transgressed My covenant." That I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel with them, whether they will care to walk in the way of the Lord uh, as their fathers did or not. So you get the picture. The Israelites experienced this cyclical pattern throughout the course of history. And we'll see this cycle take place over and over again over the next couple of months as we study this book. In fact, even tonight, we're going to see three examples of this cycle take place just in chapter 3. This is the first example of this spiral taking place in the midst of Israel. So we look now in chapter 3, look now to verse 5, verse 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters, uh, they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters, they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So remember the cycle. It always starts with a headfirst plunge into sin. Here we see the Israelites are tying themselves to the inhabitants of the land in marriage. And as a result, they begin to serve their gods. So at this point, we just have to point out, Israel is running in the exact opposite direction that God has called them to run in. He called them to remove the inhabitants of the land. He, to- he called them to have nothing to do with their idolatry. Instead, what do they do? They intermingle with the inhabitants of the land and they begin to worship their gods. So here's a side point. Every time a follower of God ties himself or herself to a non-believer in a relationship, the scriptures condemn that act. 
just to be clear, every time these sorts of situations come up within the Bible, the scriptures always speak negatively towards that decision. Every single time. There's no exceptions here. And yet the Christians will say, I'm, I'm missionary dating or whatever, right? I'm trying to, to evangelize my, my boyfriend or my girlfriend. But every single time, the scriptures actually speak against this idea. And the reason is, is pretty simple. When you in, interact with someone in a, in a relational sense, or when you become married to someone, there is a spirit, spiritual dynamic to that relationship. When you bind yourself to someone, you will be influenced by that person's spirituality. No exceptions. And as we look throughout the course of Scripture, what we typically see is that the idolater's spirituality wins out. That's the typical pattern set before us in Scripture, and that's exactly what we find here. The Israelites intermarry, and they follow after the gods of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is what the Scriptures depict as the typical outcome for entering into a relationship with a non-believer. You will take their gods. And so the judges' cycle begins. First off, we read about this judge named Othniel. This one begins like every other story. This judge's story begins like every other judge's story. Look at verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's about how every one of these stories starts. They forgot the Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Idols. Served these false gods. The cycle shows uh, that the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and this incites the Lord to anger. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of uh, Cushan Rishathayim, I suppose is how you say that, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. So the Lord directly responds to the, Israel, uh, to the Israelite sin by disciplining them. He raises up a foreign nation, and the people of Israel are then subject to the foreign nation. And they serve this specific nation for eight years. And as we read this story, there aren't really any unique details. The only thing brought up is that we hear about this specific judge named Othniel. And the the only unique detail we find is that this is Caleb's younger brother. So if you remember your biblical history, Caleb is the, the partner who led Israel with Joshua. So after Moses passes, Joshua leads the people of Israel and his his associate, his closest partner, is this man named Caleb. And so this is Caleb's younger brother. So we shouldn't be surprised. Caleb was a super godly man. And Caleb, Caleb's younger brother is following in his footsteps. And he's judging Israel. He's rescuing it, them from the hands of their enemies. And that's seen in verses 11 and 12. We see God saves the, the nation of Israel from the enemies of uh, the, the people through Caleb's brother. And they experience rest for 40 years. So essentially, the cycle is just depicted here. There aren't any really unique details that we need to discuss. However, notice at the very end there, the peace in the land only lasts 40 years. 
which obviously that implies it ended, which means next cycle, verse 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of the Palms, and the the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Pattern is taking place yet again dive into sin, God raises up a foreign nation, Israel becomes subject to this nation. But don't miss the fact that this cycle is a little bit longer. Instead of experiencing God's judgment for eight years, now Israel is experiencing God's judgment for 16 years as they serve this nation. It's almost as though God is, is, is pointing out that this nation failed to respond appropriate Last time, he gave them a a life example that they ought to learn from. He gave them this life lesson. They didn't learn from it. And so this time, it's going to be a little bit worse. So now they're entering into judgment for 16 years. God is seeking to get their attention. Well, this leads us to Ehud. Now, you might not recognize Ehud's name. Like, this isn't like one of those biblical names that we've adopted into American society, and we don't really call our children Ehud, probably for good reasons. But uh, Ehud, I would imagine you have heard about his story. Once we start reading, I would imagine you're going to be pretty familiar with this story, because this is one of the more memorable stories in the book of Judges. So let's jump into it. In verse 15, we see that Israel cries out to the Lord because they are miserable, under the foreign king Eglon, and in response, God raises up this judge named Ehud. And uh, the first significant detail that we see about him is found in verse 15. It says he's a left-handed man. Okay, that's kind of unique, I guess. Uh, I don't know what the point of bringing that up is at first, right? Then in verse 15, we see that Israel sent Ehud to King Eglon to pay tribute to him. So here's what's going on here. In, in the ancient world, when a, when a foreign nation would dominate a, a lesser nation, when the, this would take place, the, the, the nation that was subjected would then pay a tax to the king of the, the nation who had conquered them. So that's all you have here. Ehud is being sent by Israel to Eglon to pay this tax. He's paying this tribute. Look now at verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Again, remember, Ehud is left-handed. Therefore, he keeps this small sword on his right thigh. Typically, a right-handed man would keep a sword on his left thigh. And this, even though it doesn't seem very significant, will prove significant as we keep reading. Here's why. Ehud is about to go and visit the king with a sword strapped onto his leg. That's not a smart move unless you have a plan. This would not have been allowed, right? The king's guards would have seen a a sword on a man's leg and they would have prevented that person from entering into the king's presence, right? That is their duty, prevent assassins from getting to the king. And yet, the next verse shows that Ehud 
winds up in the king's presence. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to, to Eglon, king of Moab. So the fact that Ehud is a left-handed man and that he has this sword strapped onto his right leg, that, for whatever reason, allows him to enter into the presence of the king. Here's the deal. The guards would not have checked his right leg. They would have checked his left leg. And because he's left-handed, because he's odd, because he's an outcast in society, like that's not normal to be left-handed, especially in the ancient world. I think parents would probably prevent you from being left-handed. Back then, they just force you. And so this isn't normal. And so they don't even check his right side. They allow him into the king's presence. And at this point, I think we're all tracking, right? You have a skilled assassin who happens to be left-handed entering into the, to the presence of the king. And then verse 17 gets kind of weird. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> That's like one of those details that it's going to cause you to just stop and go, what in the world is going on? What in the world does this man's fatness have to do with anything? Why is his noticeable obesity brought up? Well, we got to keep reading. Verse 18. When Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back to the idols near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, that is the king, commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. So essentially, Ehud has asked his servants to leave him alone with the king. And then uh, he, he goes to the king and he asks, I need, I need to tell you something in private. So the king then looks at all of his attendants and he says, depart from me, I need to have a word with Ehud. So the king asks his servants to leave. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the door of the roof chamber behind him, and locked it. Okay, so now we see why the fatness matters, right? This man is so fat that the sword essentially disappears into his gut. Ehud just strolls out, locks the door behind him. You might be wondering, like, how in the world is he even able to get away with this? How can you just stroll out of the king's chamber after murdering the man? I think this is where the king's fatness kind of comes into play again. For a second time, now we see the king's fatness coming into the story. You see, as we keep reading, we find out that the king's servants, they come to the door of the chamber and they find it locked. And their first assumption is that, okay, the king must be on the toilet. After all, he's a big man, right? They probably smelt the dung that had fallen out of his stomach. Just presuming, right? So look how they they respond to the door being locked. Verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Notice that word, surely. 
Like, of course, that must be what's happening. Right? This is a common occurrence. He eats a lot. He, he relieves himself a lot. Sooner or later, the servants, they get embarrassed. And they're thinking to themselves, I know he uses the bathroom a lot, but typically it takes a long time. But this is, this is getting a little ridiculous. Verse 25. They waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key, they opened them, and there lay on the floor, or there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So this whole scene took so long to play out that Ehud was able to walk out of the city gate into the hills. He gets there, he sounds a trumpet, he gathers all of Israel for a battle. So Ehud, he, verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. They killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Again, God provides deliverance. And he did so through this unsuspecting left-handed man. And then through Ehud's victory, God gave the land rest for 80 years. But again, don't miss the finite nature of that statement. This wasn't everlasting peace. This wasn't everlasting rest. No, this peace had an end. It was only a season. Why? Clearly, the cycle is going to take place again. Israel is going to fail to walk in holiness. They're not going to learn from the life lesson God intended for them to learn from. So we see a forecast. Here's what's going to happen in their future. Another cycle. It's only going to take 80 years. And so these closing remarks might at first sound kind of hopeful, but in reality, these aren't hopeful remarks. In reality, what we see here is is damning. The people of Israel will not remain faithful to, to the Lord. Instead, they're going to walk in disobedience, and they're going to walk in disobedience in short order. Which leads us to Shamgar. The final judge that we read about is named Shamgar. And we don't see hardly anything about him. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. You're just going, okay. Like, who is this guy? Obviously, he's, uh, he's elite. All he had was an ox goad, and he killed 600 dudes with it. I mean, this is kind of odd, right? Like, why are there no details about him? Why is there no details about the cycle? The funny thing here is that when you read commentaries on on Shamgar, there's like one verse on him, and yet all the commentaries have pages of details about this guy, right? And you're like, what gives? There's one verse about him. Why are you spending so much time talking about this guy? Honestly, there is something significant here that we can't miss, and it's related to the fact 
that Shamgar is proof that the people of Israel did not learn from the lesson with Ehud. Ehud was supposed to teach them a lesson. It failed. They walked right back into sin. God had granted them a remarkable victory, and yet Israel dove right back into their sin. But there's one more significant detail that we need to see here, and it's related to Shamgar's name. Shamgar, the son of Enath, that's not a Hebrew name. This is what's kind of interesting. That's not a Hebrew name. And in fact, the fact that he's mentioned to be the son of Enath, that is actually a title for an Egyptian warrior. So, what's the significance of this? Here's the point the author's making. Israel had fallen so far from God that now they're depending on foreigners to rescue them. That's the point he's making. Now now they are depending on, on an enemy to bring them salvation from their other enemies. That's how far Israel has slipped away from God. And so... At the end of the day, we need to just ask the question, what are we to gather from all of this? How are we supposed to respond to these, you know, kind of horrible stories? You know, you read about Ehud and you're, you're like, man, that's a sort of awesome story. It's kind of disgusting. It's kind of strange. So what do we do with this? What do we do about Shamgar? This guy who kills 600 people with an ox goad. A lot of people will read these stories and they'll say, you know, here's the important, that we, or the important lesson we need to learn. We need to learn that God uses our weaknesses for his purposes. That's what God used Ehud for. He's a left-handed man. He's not the strongest in society. He's not the man who everyone would tend to look at. And yet God used him. I mean, there, there's some truth in that. There is some truth in that. God does use our weaknesses for his glory. And yet, that's not really the message we ought to be walking away from uh, this story with. Other people might look at Shamgar and they'll say, just bring to God what you have. Bring to him the little bit that you have. And I'm going to grant you everything. Right? After all, this dude just had an ox goad. Right, just a little stick that he directed the ox with, and he killed 600 men with it. Just praying to God the little bit that you have, and he will bless you with for that. Again, there might be a little bit of truth to that, but at the end of the day, that's not the primary point that we need to be walking away from this story with. Instead, I think there are two points that we need to walk away with. First off, do not forget the internal enemy within your heart. Do not forget that there is an enemy waging war against you, and that enemy dwells within your heart. Israel was far too concerned with what was going on on the exterior. Israel was far too uh, concerned with what was happening from outside of themselves. They thought all of their problems were, were located in their external enemies. So they keep asking God for rescue. They want to be delivered from their problems. And little do they realize their ultimate enemy is not outside of themselves, it's within them. Their ultimate enemy is located directly within their heart. Their actual problem is the, 
the sin that's creeping into their minds. The reason they had enemies in the first place on the outside was because of the enemies they had on the inside. Remember, the only reason their enemies had any success over them was because God enabled them to have success over the Israelites. And the reason God enabled them to have success over the Israelites was because of their wayward hearts. Israel was blinded to this. They did not understand the life lesson that God intended for them to recognize. They should be singing the song that we were singing earlier. When we are slain, we ought to be looking to God and trying to understand what are you seeking to teach me through this suffering. They should have recognized the difficult circumstances and looked at their hearts within and tried to weed out any, any sin taking place in their hearts. Their suffering should have brought about introspection, should have brought them to the point of pleading with God for forgiveness. Instead, they just cry out to God because they're overwhelmed by their enemies. They ask for physical rescue, not spiritual rescue. As a church, we ought to be the type of people who call out to God when we recognize that sin is in our midst. We should cry out to God when we see fellow church members walking in sin, engaging in idolatry. That's what the, that's what the Israelites should have been crying out to God for. There are individuals in our midst who call themselves Israelites who are straying after foreign gods. They aren't crying out about that. All they want to do is cry out about their physical enemies. But here's the reality is that we so often follow the example of the Israelites. Instead of calling out to God when sin is creeping in our hearts, we call out to God when we begin to reap the consequences of our sin. So we ask God, deliver us from the relational strife that I'm experiencing. All the while, the only reason we're experiencing relational strife in the first place is because we walk around causing strife with our bitter hearts, with our impatience. You see the issue here. Instead of asking God for deliverance from our bitter, impatient hearts, we're asking God, deliver us from this situation where I have this person in my family who's getting on my nerves. The reason that person's getting on your nerves is because of your impatience. We cry out to God when we're in financial difficulties. But the reality is that our financial difficulties are just the result of our covetous hearts. We're buying things we can't afford because we covet them with our eyes. That's why we're in the financial difficulty in the first place. So before we begin to cry out to God to heal our financial difficulties or heal our broken relationships, cry out to God to heal your own heart. Ask him to to solve the issue going on within. We need to recognize that our greatest enemy is is not found outside of ourselves. It's found right here. So cry out to God in your fight against sin. And with this in mind, there's another lesson that we need to learn here. God offers us remarkably gracious provisions as the people of God. One aspect of our passage that we we cannot miss because it is so remarkable is the fact that God continues to pour out his gracious provisions on the Israelites. 
In all of these stories, we get a glimpse of God turning away from his wrath against Israel in order to show this people his grace. And this is so profound. It's so profound for just a number of reasons. Think about it. God is willing to offer help to Israel in their fight against their physical enemies even when they don't understand the reason their enemies are prevailing over them. They don't understand that their sin is the ultimate issue, and yet they call out to God, and God is gracious, even when they don't recognize the situation taking place in front of them. They don't actually understand their true state. So let me unpack this for a moment. God was faithful to deliver Israel even though they did not understand the true nature of the issues going on. As we just discussed, they thought their greatest problem was outside of themselves. They thought their greatest enemies were those outside of themselves. And God's baffling grace is seen in the fact that God keeps on rescuing the Israelites from their external enemies even though they don't realize that their heart is the problem. If God is willing to show that sort of grace to Israel, how much more will he prove faithful to us in our fight against the enemy of our hearts? How, how much can we trust God that he will grant us victory over our truest enemies if he was willing to help the Israelites who are blind to their sin. We don't have to wonder. This is the beauty of God. We do not have to wonder whether or not he will do that because he has already demonstrated for us over and over again that he will do that. And he's demonstrated it in the most profound of ways in the cross. The cross is a portrait of God's willingness to offer us deliverance from the enemies of our hearts. That's what the cross is. The death of God's son is a demonstration of the extent to which God will go in order to rescue us from our enemies. He will die. He has offered us deliverance from the enemy of sin and by offering us deliverance from the enemy of sin we now have deliverance from the enemy of death and by granting us this we now have freedom to walk with Christ in the in the the cross in the gospel God has demonstrated the great compassion that he has for his people. He has demonstrated the fact that he is willing to go to the most extreme of, of, of extents in order to save us from his wrath. But let's not lose sight of the fact that God's deliverance is not only deliverance on some future day. God's deliverance is now. He's granting us the ability to walk in freedom now, today, Jesus empowers us through his resurrection so that we might walk in victory over our enemy that's located within our chest. Through his death, we are granted victory so that we might walk in newness of life one day in God's presence. We're now free from sin in a justification sort of sense. But right now, through his resurrection, we have power to overcome sin today, not just in a future day. 
God has given us the ability to walk in freedom now. He has delivered us from the greatest enemies that we have. Sin, death, and the devil. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your deliverance. The fact that you are a God who delivers us, though we don't deserve it. Lord, you demonstrated your willingness to deliver the Israelites, though they did not deserve it. And God, we know we are not much different. And yet you have chosen to rescue us. What a great truth for us to think about. Father, we pray that tonight as we sing, as we hear uh, these songs and participate in these songs, we pray that we would be encouraged by them. And we pray that as we spend time talking over snacks and and hanging out tonight, we pray that it would be a, a joy for everyone who's here. We pray all of this in Christ's name.